Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Block. Coming at you a little earlier this week. Derek, how you been, man? I've been doing well. I've been learning a lot of magic tricks and studying the scriptures. So, I've been having fun. Cool, man. That sounds like a good time. Well then, let's go ahead and dive straight into this week's stuff. Not a lot in terms of news, but I did want to talk to you about something. Uh, you had actually referred me to Tad Walsh from uh, the Deseret News. I don't know too much about the guy other than he works for them. Is there anything else I need to know about that guy? I think he's the main journalist, I suppose, that covers any big church news, any major stuff. He's the one that gets assigned to do it. Um, and he also has a lot of access to the inner circle uh, of the brethren. I think when the brethren want to do an interview, when they want something done, they talk to him, and he's kind of the leading journalist for the for the religion connection for the uh, Deseret News. Okay. Well, then he asked a interesting question about a quote from uh, President Nelson. And apparently this is something he said in multiple situations with regard to the partnership with the NAACP. That phrase, that quote was, we strive to build bridges of cooperation rather than walls of segregation. Now, Maybe I just wasn't paying attention that well, but I had only heard it or it really it only really registered with me when he said it at the NAACP convention a couple of weeks ago. But apparently he said it multiple times, according to uh, Ted Walsh, and uh, he wanted to get people's idea of what they thought of that particular phrase. And I thought it'd be fun to kick off this episode with a, a quick answer to that prompt. So, uh, Derek, if I could ask you, what do you think, or rather, what does that phrase mean to you? So, so to, to me, that phrase means to make an effort to prioritize, to understand, and, and to acknowledge a people on their terms. Like if the church is trying to build bridges with an organization built for the purpose of advancing a people they have historically dispossessed, then the church is going to have to do a lot of that. So he, he asked what that phrase means from the head of the church, and I'm not inclined to believe that it means all that much yet. Like, I hope it means that the church is going to make a concerted effort to prioritize its relationship with the black community through, you know, this historic partnership. But history is telling me to not get my hopes up. Like, I can count on one hand the number of times that the church has condemned racism in the last decade. But if you search LDS.org for counsel on something like pornography, you'll find results for days, whereas for issues like racism, you'll only find like four hits. So I, I hope that people look at this partnership and understand that since the church is prioritizing a relationship with the black community through the NAACP, that we as individuals must also prioritize positive relationships with black people that we may be better ministers to them. That's what we can do on a local level. So it, me it means coming to the organization on their own terms. We, we need to understand that we're co Yeah, just that, that, that's my answer to the question. What do you think? How would you answer? Like I said, I think last week, what, what, um, what president Nelson said contains a lot of ideals that we don't quite live up to. But we can use those ideals as uh, a prophetic direction 
or a goal that we can strive for and we can use that locally. So there are a lot of walls of segregation, um, not just on gender, uh, not just on race, but also on gender, on orientation, on gender identity, on income, ability, all of these other things that should not exist within the body of Christ. We should be one. And I think President Nelson's comments prompt us to look carefully at our own body and see, well, what ways are we fractured? Who's not in leadership? Who's not, who doesn't have access to resources? Who is marginalized or stigmatized? All of those things should be seen as walls of segregation to be eliminated so that we can have a cohesive and unified body of Christ. So yeah, we can be looking for that story from uh, Ted Walsh to come out, I, I guess, in the next few days. I didn't see it in Deseret News this morning, so uh, you know it'll probably be a little while, but I'm anxious to hear what other people had to say about that particular phrase. I know he's talked to several people, and... Um, you know, hopefully people see it the way we have as well, like especially as a symbolic uh, gesture that we at a local level should be striving for. And that was actually part of the subject for my elders quorum uh, lesson this past Sunday. I don't know. Like I told you about this, right? That I taught elders quorum this past Sunday. Right. You told me that. Okay. So let me, let me tell you what the impetus for this was, like where it all started. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had a baptism in the ward. And the brother who got baptized, he happened to be black. And of course, that's a big deal to me. I got to officiate in the baptism as well, which was really cool. Like I haven't officiate, I haven't witnessed a baptism of a black person since my mission, let alone officiate in one. So this was, this was a big deal. And I was talking to someone else in attendance at the baptism. And I don't remember how it came up, but we got to talking about the podcast. We got to talking about race, race issues within the church. And the elders quorum president overheard us talking and suggested that discussing these issues within the quorum would be a good idea. I thought that was a pretty brave suggestion, and had, it had been over a decade since someone gave me a whole classroom full of white Mormons to talk to them about race for 45 to 50 minutes. So um, so even though I was nervous about the prospect, I, I took it on. But here's why I was nervous, though. Like... Over a decade ago, I was a freshman or a sophomore at BYU, attending one of the hundreds of young single adult wards on campus. And as was par for course, I was probably the only black face in my ward. Like, I was just an attendee of the class, and the subject of the priesthood band seemed to come out of nowhere. So uh, knowing that I was on the spot, I offered my take, which was met at first with a tense silence, followed by one voice saying, I don't think that's fair to say followed by a quoting of 2 Nephi 26.33, which, you know, President Nelson actually quoted in his address two weeks ago, saying, all are alike unto God, that there's sameness in everybody, that male and female, black and white, bond and free, in essence minimizing the priesthood ban and its effects on my spiritual ancestors. The one voice emboldened by many other people in the class who were clearly made uncomfortable by remarks Although they voiced that discomfort pleasantly, there was a discernible hostility to my words, and I was outnumbered, so I, I looked like the crazy one, and it was really uncomfortable. So now it's 10 years later, a lot has happened, I've gone on a mission, I'm 10 years older, I understand the band and racial issues, I've done more work to do that anyway, and I'm more um, 
confident and at peace with my relationship to that history and to the church. So I'm in a better place for this class that I'm leading. Now, the class starts off well enough. And uh, since President Nelson's address at the NAACP convention was just the week before, I, I used that as a jump off point to ask the question, how do we at a local level prioritize our relationship with the black community to the end of, quote, building racial and ethnic harmony while abolishing prejudice, close quote. So uh, the first thing I start talking about, in essence, is why black people tend to steer clear of the church. And I cite first the priesthood ban. Now, after going over the 2013 essay that talked about it and the popular, though incorrect, justifications for it, I told the brethren that the most likely and simplest explanation was racism. To my right, surprise, racism. Yeah. Now, to my surprise, just about everyone was cool with that, and they understood that acknowledging the church's past racism took the responsibility off of them to justify the ban. Like, if you accept that this was just racism, you don't have to perform the mental gymnastics of finding righteousness in the ban. Right. Now, during that time, someone had commented on a quote that I had read from Brigham Young when he explained why the Negro wasn't to hold the priesthood. A white brother in the quorum comfortably called Brigham Young a racist, though that wasn't the point of the comment, and that triggered a visiting brother to, uh, to jump to Brigham Young's defense. Now, this particular brother, bless his heart, proceeded to caution the brethren in the class against judging Brigham by calling him a racist. And he do this multiple times throughout the lesson, effectively derailing the conversation that I'm trying to have. Now, unfortunately, I had expected this, but I really didn't want to be confrontational while I was giving the lesson. And I had even given a disclaimer at the beginning of the class that so long as we're in this classroom for the next, you know, 45 minutes or however long, there's no such thing as a stupid question. But thankfully, members of, the members of the quorum were able to acknowledge that, one, whether Brigham Young or was racist or not, doesn't actually change the impact of a racist policy. And two, two things can be true. Like a person can be both racist and a good person. Most racism I experience is from these kinds of people. They simply grew up in a society that has conditioned them to view themselves as superior to blacks. They're not bad people for that. At all, like I pointed out, I pointed to the example of uh, people in a multi-ward building being quick to blame the Spanish-speaking ward when something goes missing or when something breaks. Like it's little incidents like that that are manifestations of racism from good people for the most part. Like some people just don't view that language or that behavior as problematic. It doesn't mean they're bad people and we're not necessarily rushing to judgment to describe the impact of their actions or their words as racist. Now, the derailments caused me to rush through a lot of my lesson because we spent a lot of time trying to get this discussion back on, tr on track from this one brother who kept derailing it. Now, the Elders Quorum president, in his wisdom, saw what I was doing, and he suggested that those who could stay after the uh, time expired, he suggested that they do so while those who needed to leave were also free to do so. And thankfully, most everyone stayed and allowed me to get through uh, the majority or rather the rest of my points. So after getting through that whole thing, we started talking about solutions. And, you know, there were still a couple more derailments, but we got through all my bullet points. And I feel like the quorum is better for it because, you know, we got to talk about how we're going to educate ourselves, build more empathy and how basically 
the key to a better understanding or to a better relationship and a better ministering capacity to the black community is in essence making an effort to understand the America they live in, making a better effort to understand their struggles, making a better effort to understand uh, their hesitance to have anything to do with our faith because of our past. So it was really good. I, I think that the whole discussion was necessary and it was very productive. Oh boy, though, still tried to talk to me after the lesson, though, and I, like, and you know, he tried to talk to me like I ain't just clock out after the closing prayer. Like, he was doing things like citing his proximity to black and brown bodies to justify some of his problematic attitudes, and I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm just trying to go to Munch and Mingle and go home, bro. Like, just, I'm done. Like, that whole thing was taxing, and I really just want to be done with this whole thing, because what I just did was an act of charity for you guys. I didn't have to do that at all. That discussion was exhausting. And when I'm just not existing in the in the in the capacity as an elders quorum instructor, uh-huh. I don't want to be bothered about this stuff. So let's just be done. Let's just enjoy this munch and mingle that we've assembled of Pringles and peanut M and M's and be done with the conversation. So that was that was my Sunday. Yeah, I have one question for you. What? How does it feel when? a white person steps up and says the right thing so that you don't have to. I love it, man, because, you know, there's all these tropes and ideas about the angry black man, and the less I have to... The less I have to be the angry black man or do something that would allow me to be seen as the angry black man, the better, you know? Just... It it shouldn't be solely my responsibility to correct problematic behaviors and actions because if it is then i'm just going to seem angry all the time and plus when white people step in and do it it breaks the illusion of white solidarity which is this idea that all white people seem to think the same about other races simply by virtue of their skin tone now when white people speak up and say i actually don't agree with this behavior or these this rhetoric they're in essence Uh, disempowering other white people from doing the same thing or from having that same mindset. So when there's one dissenting voice that that speaks up and says, hey, that's problematic language or that's a racist behavior, then other white people around will be less apt who think that way to say something or do something problematic. And plus the person who was initially offensive will be less likely to utter racist dialogue or to engage in racist behaviors while other white people are around because now he knows that not everybody thinks and feels the way that he does. So I like it when white people speak up. Right. Well, thank you so much for that guidance. Uh, We should all take that into account. Yeah, man. Uh, That's really all I got for uh, new stuff. Um, Not a lot of new stories in terms of... uh, news this week there have been a couple things that happened but i don't really know uh, how i want to talk about them because in one form or another we've actually talked about the principles to be gained from some of these news stories and we can Mm, always come back to those in another episode but i would really like to get onto this come follow me because what is important about this come follow me is it covers one of what is traditionally called the clobber passages in the scriptures and this is the longest clobber passage in um in all of scripture right so the so the opportunity to get to discuss that is uh, is great and we're definitely still going to have an 
a dedicated episode to probably all the clobber passages and any other non-affirming language that occurs in all of scripture and all of the words of the prophets. But uh, because this so happens to be in the Come Follow Me lesson for the coming week, I would love for us to uh, to go over this you know, as much as we can for this episode and uh, just see where that discussion goes. Now, I've already... Right, yeah, especially... Yeah. Especially because people will be teaching this yes. uh, next Sunday and and we should get as much as we can out here so that people can help guide their classes on a right path. So how do we want to do this? I have 14 points that I want to make <laughs> and I don't know if you want, like, you probably... You probably should maybe respond to each one rather than saving all your thoughts to the end. I don't know if you had points you wanted to make first. I, I mean, just wanted to see. I actually do have points, and um, you know they're, they're going to be in the same. They're going to be in the same vein, and you can obviously add on to these because I'm sure you've thought about this more than I have. But I mm-hmm. would just really like to uh, take the opportunity to to go through what I have noticed in uh, these verses. And obviously okay. pass the uh, baton to you to expand upon all of this. Now, what I want to focus on is this clobber passage, you know, Romans 1, particularly verses 26 through 27. And uh, in these verses, uh, the Apostle Paul condemns same-sex behavior as shameful and unnatural. Those are the words that are, that are used. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a couple of problems with this. Uh, one is that, you know, Paul in other, in other epistles says things like long hair in men is shameful and against nature. But most Christians interpret those terms as being culturally limited. And I don't see why that label can't be applied to what is happening in, uh, in, the, in Romans chapter 1. Secondly... In ancient societies, male passivity or female dominance in sex was seen as unnatural because it violated patriarchal gender norms, not necessarily anatomical complementarity or some sort of divine injunction to not, you know, to to not engage in those acts. Those norms were also culturally uh, limited. And uh, Romans 1 actually, like in the context of all the other sins that are being mentioned in this epistle, he, he's talking specifically about lustful same-sex behavior, not, not to loving monogamous relationships. And I think the biggest problem that we as Christians tend to, tend to engage in is this notion that any condemnation of homosexual behavior, particularly this one in Romans 1, is a blanket condemnation of homosexual behavior in all contexts. And in this particular context, it is in... It is in sexual excess that that a same-sex activity is condemned, but there's nothing to be said in any of Scripture when it comes to when it comes to uh, loving, committed relationships or even marriage. So it's not really fair uh, for us to use this Scripture to not affirm same-gender relationships, especially when you consider that the idea of homosexuality as a socially operating category held in contradistinction to heterosexuality, that idea is relatively new. Like, that didn't come about until, like, the 1700s. So I, I suppose I could use that point to, to disagree with any non-affirming beliefs or non-affirming applications to Scripture in all contexts. 
But uh, for this particular one, I really just want to point out the inconsistency of, um, you know, labeling this as shameful and against nature or also labeling this as a blanket condemnation of same-sex relationships in all contexts, primarily because we don't have we, we don't have the cultural ground to do so and we, we don't have the historical ground to do so. That, that's basically all I wanted to cite. Yeah, I think that that's a good, uh, a good. Well, you said what I was going to say in a very short way. Uh, but, <laughs> so what I can, what I can focus on is sort of the supporting details behind a lot of what you already said. Great. And sort of the the, the structure around this. So going to my points, the first point that I'd like to make, especially to my LGBTQ siblings, is not to be afraid of the text. Okay. Yes, people have misused this text to deny justice to our people, but we will take away all of that oppressive power. We will take it away from them when we approach this text with courage and trust rather than with fear. So we shouldn't fear that suddenly if we make a mistake, this text will somehow force us to be anti-gay. We should not have that fear. We should not uh, be afraid to read this text or to discuss this text because it has no power over us in the end. Okay. And connected with this is the fact that straight privilege needs to be named here. There is a major double standard. Straight people don't have to be experts in the Bible in order to partake of love, safety, family, and marriage with someone that they are compatible with. So why should gay folks? As it is, an average person who knows nothing about the Bible can demand that queer people have graduate training in the scriptures, be experts in Greek <laughs> and Hebrew, and to be able to explicate the cultural and historical context before we can even think about falling in love. And that's completely unfair. Straight people don't have to do that, so neither do we. Mm. So, to, to my opponents out there, how dare you demand that of us when we're just doing the same thing you are doing? We're finding love and building families. That's a basic part of being human. We are just claiming the same opportunities that you have, and now all of a sudden we need a Ph.D., to do what two straight teenagers can do without having to explain themselves to anyone. Mm. I want it to be clear that I'm under no obligation to do what I'm about to do. I'm doing this freely as a favor to you. Yes, LGBTQ people will be exonerated by a close understanding of the text in its context, but we don't have to do this. This isn't necessary. Yeah. And if you're a queer and you can't answer all of the questions about this text, straight people don't get to say gotcha. Mm -hmm. Okay? I think that needs to be stated first before we let our opponents draw the lines on the ground and set up the rules of the game. Because basically, the rules of the game, the way they frame it is, you have to explain this to me and become an expert on this or else I will uh, hurt you in some way. I will deny you opportunities. I will uh, stigmatize you. I will do all these things to you unless you can you can disprove me. And that is that is not what straight people have to do. So we have to name that straight privilege at the very beginning. Yeah. And I think this is very similar to what you said about racism and your discussion with the elders quorum. Like you don't owe us. Anything. In fact, it's it's we who are white people who owe you something. 
right? Uh, you don't. Oh, you don't have to explain anything to us. I don't. Uh, Thank you, Derek. Yeah. yeah. So that's my first point. My second point is that I just want to remind people that I have to say this: that being gay is not primarily about sex. Everyone <laughs> wants to go to the sex part first, but that's that's something we don't do with straight people. So I have a number of straight married friends in my ward, and I literally never think, not even once, I not even not even until right now have I ever even thought that they do stuff in their bedroom. Even when they have babies and they bring their newborns to church, I don't actually connect it. <laughs> I don't. I think about them in their callings, how I relate to them. You know, I see them holding hands, but I don't think about their sex lives at all. Mm-hmm. And that's just how it is. And I yeah. don't even want to, not because I'm heterophobic, but just because I see these people in their callings, in their families, and that's how I relate to them. I don't relate to them on what they do in their bedrooms. They're so much bigger than their sexuality. Right, right. And I think with gay people, we have this people on, maybe even on both sides, I hate to use the both sides argument, but people on both sides tend to to emphasize the sex part of it because that's where the controversy is okay. and that's where the defense needs to be made. But that's not what it's about at all. I just want to bring in real quickly this one point from the upstairs lounge fire in New Orleans in 1973. So this, up until the Pulse Massacre, was the biggest mass killing of gay folks in America. Someone threw a firebomb into a gay bar, and it, it was very difficult for people to get out. There were bars on the windows, many exits were blocked, and uh, I think several dozen people died. And what's interesting is when they—two things— one is a lot of the people that died, their families didn't claim their bodies. They're like, we don't know who you are. We're not gonna, we're not gonna claim you. So that that is an offense on top of their deaths. And two, one of the things that they noticed when they when they went in afterward is that some you found people locked in in, in an em, embrace in their dying moments. They clinged to their partner they cling to their lover and died together like Pompeii you know how everyone was frozen in ash in Pompeii and in whatever spot they were in mm. that's how it was here I just want to point out that these people in their last dying moments didn't decide and this is gonna sound like I'm being funny I'm not being funny they didn't decide to say oh look we're gonna be die in a few minutes let's have sex we didn't find them in the middle of, of sex. We found them in a posture of connecting with another person on a whole level of embrace of, about being together. And that's what they did in their final moments is they craved human connection. They weren't craving sex. Being gay, the reason that they were there in the gay bar was not about sex. And the reason they were killed was not about sex. It was because they dared to build a family with one another, a chosen family that that violates other people's norms and expectations. And I just want to name that. Mm. Okay, so we shouldn't we shouldn't look at this and focus on, you know, the gay sex part of it. Point number three. The Bible is not the end of the conversation, but the beginning. Especially oh. because we're a church of continuing revelation. Okay. Yeah. Right? I'm excited for this one. 
The Bible doesn't answer every question our modern circumstances could pose. That's Say it. not its point. And we distort the text when we try to make it do so. Okay, a lot of people, especially our friends in the evangelical world, all they have is the Bible, right? Yeah, yeah. So they have to milk out of the biblical text every possible answer to every contemporary question, and that's going to really mess things up. Um, fortunately, we have a living prophet, but our history in the church has not actually gone, been of, oh, let's take this to the Lord. It's been, let's see what our Protestant friends have done on this. And we've just borrowed their exegesis of the Bible to try to answer these questions. And we haven't considered this in a fresh way, taking it to the Lord anew, saying, hey, look, we need new light and knowledge. We have not gotten a canonized revelation that's been added to our scriptures that addresses these questions. Mm. So point number four, connected with that, we have to remember that this letter, like all of Paul's letters, is what we call an occasional letter. I think a scholar sometimes uh, scholars sometimes use funny language like oh he just occasionally wrote a letter but it's no it's he wrote a letter on a specific occasion that there is some prompting event that occasioned this uh, letter okay uh, so basically it was written at a, as a, at a specific time to a specific audience in response to a real question on the ground a real specific need or a particular occasion there is no evidence that Paul is addressing our contemporary conversation, which is the place of same-gender loving, lifelong, faithful, and publicly accountable relationships. Uh. What I mean by publicly accountable is the community holds these people accountable to their promises to each other, faithfulness, and such like that. These are not relationships done in secret. They're not something you sneak around and do. It's a publicly accountable relationship. So to put some meat on this skeleton, let's talk about what we know or can infer about the writing of Romans. Okay. It was, it was written in Corinth around the year 56 or 57 of the Common Era by Paul, who as a single person was a sexual minority himself. Also, he was staying at Gaius's house in Corinth at the time, who probably was single himself and had other single men living in his large house in Corinth. Now, we get all this info from the greetings in Romans chapter 16. One of these men in this large bachelor pad could have been Tertius, the scribe who actually wrote down the letter at Paul's dictation. Now, also, Paul had Phoebe, and she was the servant leader of, of the congregation at Sincrea. Now, Sincrea was a small town just outside Corinth. Okay, And Corinth is on the the mainland of Greece, uh, if people know where Corinth is. Okay, so Phoebe, oh, this is really interesting, and we can talk more about this next week when we when we get to Romans sixteen. But Phoebe is never described as anyone's wife or daughter. She is not defined by her relationship to a man. She is uh, called a sister in Christ, a believer. She's called um, a diakonos, which is can be translated deacon, but it means a servant or someone who um, is assisting the work. Oh, hold up. Serving she's God's a, people. She's ba- Paul's working with a female missionary, basically? Oh, yeah, yeah. She's the leader of the, the congregation at Sancria. So Paul, who at one point said that women should be silent, also is working with a female leader of the church, in essence. Right, and we can talk more about this, ne- this okay, next week. Okay, my bad, my bad, my yeah. bad. <laughs> but... 
but my, my, my point is, is that she's identified by her faith and by her calling and by her leadership, not by, by her usefulness to a man. Okay. Yeah. And I think there's a powerful point there, both from the feminist angle and from the LGBT angle. Totally. Now, so Paul was planning to stage a missionary journey to the western part of the Roman Empire, and he wanted the support of the Christians at Rome. Now, when you're, now he's looking for money. He's looking for a staging ground. And when you're doing that, you're going to send your very best. So Paul sent Phoebe. And the, the, the important thing here is that Paul sent a co-worker who probably read the letter out loud to the house churches in Rome when she got there. And she would have been trusted by, by Paul to explain or contextualize anything new or difficult in this letter. We don't have instant communication here. We actually don't have any mass mail system here. If you wanted to mail a letter, there was no postal service. You had to send it with, with someone. You could hire someone or send a friend, but there was no mail service here. So that's the background here. And so I should point out that we don't have Phoebe with us today. So we are limited in what we can recover from the text. There may be questions we can never answer. Okay. And we have to be okay with that. Okay. Now we have to have a healthy and realistic approach to the text so that we won't overclaim and pretend to be confident about things that we can't. Now, one of the surprising things about Romans 1, especially verses 26 and 27, is that most commentaries on the text that are very thorough and skilled and scholarly elsewhere all of a sudden become very superficial when we look at these verses. They think, oh, there's nothing really to see here. It's completely obvious. I don't actually have to do any work on this text. And I think this is what has been missed by so many people when they discuss Romans 1, 26, and 27. And, and this is why if I were to write a commentary on the book of Romans, I would do it backwards, chapter by chapter, starting with chapter 16 and ending with chapter 1, saving the hard conversation for last after we have gone through what Paul's saying elsewhere. And the reason I would do this is because the greetings in chapter 16 provide a lot of context. So in, in, this, in chapter 16, the final chapter of Romans, Paul mentions 38 people. 38 people, okay, including himself and Phoebe. And 20 of, 28 of them are in Rome. 32 of them, of, of all of these, so he has, sends greetings from people in Corinth as well. And so 32 of these 38 people are apparently unmarried. We have three married couples listed, husband and wife. Everyone else is apparently single. They are not uh, mentioned in any connection with a spouse. So here's another thing. We have 10 women listed in this chapter. Eight of them are specifically noted as leaders in the church. Now, many of these names, uh, twelve, about 12 to 26 of them, are names that were common among the enslaved populations of the Roman Empire. So you know how in, in our modern era, like you can tell, you can almost tell what class people are based on their name. Like if they are um, Chad Richardson Prescott III, you know that there's some ri- rich waspy family, right? Probably, yeah. And well, anyway, so it's similar here. We can tell which, which names are likely to be to belong to the enslaved populations. Now, the whole point of this is that the letter was basically written to and from people on the margins, single people, women, enslaved people, or free people who had been enslaved, uh, now are liberated, but are still likely poor. 
And this should change everything about how we look at the whole letter of Romans. Now, there were a few prosperous people, such as Phoebe, uh, who had the means to support uh, Paul, and Gaius, who had a very large house in Corinth. But uh, but for this text and other uh, points, um, I'm, I'm drawing extensively on the commentary on Romans by Thomas Hanks in the Queer Bible Commentary. That's where I'm getting all of these figures from. They're actually, if you look very carefully, uh, in there in chapter 16. So I should also note that Paul is writing to a church that he did not plant himself and he had never visited before. We do know that uh, there were Jews from Rome at Pentecost at that event, and so they probably brought the gospel back with them to Rome. Somehow you had a congregation of Christians in Rome that Paul did not uh, found, and he can't come in the same way as a leader. In one of his own congregations, he could like get them in shape and put them in line in a certain way. Now he can't do that with, with the, con- the Christians at Rome. But what he's trying to do here is he's trying to get the Roman Christians to support him on his mission to Spain. And that changes the nature of the letter. He's going to start out with their commonalities, things that they already believe, things they already know. So he's not going to have to explain a lot of it. He's not going to have to um, uh, address a lot of problems from you know, the way he does in some of his other letters. So we have to keep that in mind, that in the very beginning, he's not going to spell out everything. These are things that are commonplaces to both Paul and his audience, and he doesn't need to flesh out the details, which now causes us a problem when we try to recover what he's doing. Mm. Now, one problem that he does address is the relationship between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in Rome. We can tell by the names in, in chapter 16 that in Rome, six of the 28 saints were Jewish And among those sending greetings from Corinth, five of the nine were Jewish. So we have a mix of Jews and Gentiles trying to coexist very early in the uh, uh, history of the church. Just a few decades after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, you've you've got this going on. So number five, this leads to my next point that Paul and his audience in Rome took certain things for granted, like I already said. When Paul describes the wickedness of Gentiles in Romans 1, he trusts that the Roman Christians know exactly what he's talking about and are already in agreement with him that these practices are abhorrent. This is part of his whole rhetorical strategy we'll get to later. But unfortunately for us, we don't know exactly what these practices were or exactly what Paul's problem with them were. And we can't prove conclusively what Paul had in mind. So what I do know is that Paul writes very differently for people who disagree with him. When that happens, he spells out a very clear argument to persuade them and to explain and to lead them along and spell it all out, and he doesn't do that here. He's writing to a community that takes this knowledge for granted, what he's talking about. Okay. And let's talk about sexual norms in the ancient Greco-Roman world, which you've already mentioned. Yeah. So they didn't divide things up by gender, the way we do, in terms of appropriateness of a partner. For them, the appropriateness of a partner had to do with status. A free man could have sex with anyone of a lower status. That could be women, that could be enslaved men, or it could be young boys, Mm. people of a lower status, Uh, which is very different than the way we carve up things right now. So you don't even have 
uh, the concept of homosexuality as a as its own thing the same way. Yeah. And a lifelong, faithful, committed, equal partnership between the two adult men was very rare in the ancient world. Very rare. Um, so that you have to keep that into in mind. So that's probably not what Paul's talking about. Another thing we have to remember is that the Roman emperors, oh, they, they engaged in a lot of drunkenness, a lot of wickedness, a lot of wild parties, a lot of orgies, um, including things like pederasty and other unequal relationships. And Paul is writing to the heart of the Roman Empire, Christians who are under the sh- right under the shadow of the Roman emperor. And something like this is likely the background here because he's talking about the wickedness of Gentiles and where it leads to. Mm, okay. So point number six, let's talk about what Paul doesn't say. Yeah. He doesn't address same-sex orientation at right, all. Right, right. He doesn't talk about any concept of orientation. He doesn't say, yes, I know that some people are genuinely attracted to those of the same gender, and I know exactly what they should do. He doesn't say that. Now, if he had said that, our job would be a lot easier. Easier. In fact, there is no biblical category of, quote, homosexuality. There is no Hebrew or Greek word that is the equivalent of homosexual or homosexuality. Right, right. Not only is there no word, but there's no conceptual category either. Right. There's no way that Paul could be talking about an entire modern category in the first century. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I should let people know that the words homosexual and homosexuality are no longer used by my community and now are considered offensive. So a lot of people don't realize that. I'm just going to say that uh, out loud so that people know. Okay. And as a result of all this, there's no blanket condemnation, as you said, of same-gender relationships anywhere in the Bible. Right. And here's, here's another piece of evidence for that. In part, we know that because there is never an explicit condemnation of lesbian relationships anywhere in the Bible. Not even here. Mm-hmm. So if you look carefully, he talks about women, but he doesn't say that they that they exchanged the use of men and turned to other women. It just says that they did um, unnatural things. And it looks in context to be that they're doing unnatural things with men because Paul doesn't explain the same gender piece until he gets to verse 27 where he talks about the men. And then it has to add the new information that this is now a same gender thing. Otherwise, uh, because he he mentions the women first and then the men second and adds the same gender piece, it's probably uh, the case that he's talking about something he finds unnatural uh, with the women and their and their male partners. Mm-hmm. And, and it could be unnatural in the terms of procreation that, that maybe they were engaging in oral or anal sex with men, women and men together. But we don't know. Like I said, we can't recover exactly what he's talking about. Well, what we do know is uh, like just one idea that I came across was this idea that what was unnatural was probably because of the patriarchy. Like there was a lot of misogyny and patriarchy. That was a big thing. And what was probably, quote unquote, unnatural about women being with women 
was that a woman took the position of a man to subjugate another woman to that position. And right, uh, right. what was unnatural wasn't so much like the anatomical complementarity that we had discussed earlier, but rather a woman supposing the position that a man should normally be taking. So it was more offensive that a woman was taking the status of a man rather than the fact that two women were together. Like that was probably the unnatural piece uh, to this whole women being with women thing. Right. Although Paul doesn't explicitly say women were with women. Right. He doesn't say that. Yeah. But if he did, or if this was right. like, yeah. Right. Um, so, so my point is because the only prohibitions we find in the Bible are against certain male, male acts. You can't say that there's a blanket condemnation of same gender acts because you're only getting half of them. You're only getting the ones between males and males. You don't have any condemnation anywhere of of lesbian relationships. And because of that, you can't say that there is an, a blanket condemnation for all times and all circumstances and all relationships of this of of same gender relationships. Mm. Okay. Point number seven. Let's have a thought experiment. And I think I'm the first scholar to point this out. So I, I've never heard anyone say it this way before. So I'm going to say it here for the first time for the world. Let's take the language of Romans chapter one and keep the rhetoric and the phrasing exactly the same except for one change. We're going to change the genders so that now all these behaviors are heterosexual and we're going to keep all of the disgust and condemnation the same. So here's what, what we have. Paul then says hypothetically that as an outgrowth of idolatry, men stopped using women in the natural manner and had such an excess of lust that they started using women unnaturally, doing shameful things with them, things that are against nature and unclean. Now then, would anyone in the world ever take that language as a condemnation of all heterosexuality. Yeah, I really don't no. think so. No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't. Okay? Just think about it for just a second. Just half a second. If we change that language and just change one detail, he's talking about all these disgusting things, and if we said, well, keep the disgust the same, just make it with men and women together, would we Would we say, yay, I'm all behind that? Would, would we say... You know, we wouldn't. We wouldn't. We wouldn't assume that he's talking about all opposite sex relationships. So here's the thing. If we wouldn't make that assumption for straight relationships in this hypothetical Paul, we shouldn't make we shouldn't assume that of gay relationships with the the actual Paul. Okay. Right. What we should do is actually look at Paul's ethics of relationships, which we'll get to more next week when we talk about Romans 12, 13, 14. You know, for example, Romans 13 says that we should owe no one anything except to love one another and that all of the law can be summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. This is his rule for what is ethically appropriate between people. Um, we've got, you know, the body of Christ stuff in Romans 12. We've got the food sacrificed to idols stuff in Romans uh, 14. We've got all this stuff here that tells us, actually, this this is where we get the, what I quote, what I'm going to call the real Paul, where we get how he feels about how we should relate to each other. And those are the chapters that should govern 
same gender relationships. Okay. Okay. So it for Paul in the end, it's love, not ritual or arbitrary requirements. That is the measure of our relational ethics. So requiring that couples be different genders, that's an artificial and arbitrary requirement. Straight relationships and gay relationships, when you look at it at the rule of love, are morally indistinguishable. Okay? And, and we'll get to this later when I talk about how Paul deconstructs the rhetoric of Romans 1 later in his letter. So point number eight. There are three, in the literature, there are three main responses to Paul's condemnation in Romans 1. The orientation argument, the exploitation argument, and the misogyny argument. The orientation argument basically says that what was wrong with the Romans 1 people, what they were doing is that they were straight people going against their own nature and having gay sex. So Paul isn't condemning gay people having gay sex. He's condemning straight people having gay sex. And I don't think that that argument really succeeds um, because for a number of reasons, which I'm not going to get into, um, but but I don't I don't quite think that that argument completely explains everything. In part because he wasn't working with this concept of orientation to begin right, with. Right. Two, like where does it leave bisexuals? We can't leave out the bisexuals. Like what's natural for them? Three, it it leaves out this idea of of something that is a consensual relationship between adults. How, like, why would that be wrong if it's just because someone's not oriented that way? I just don't understand how that really could be what Paul's saying. So the second argument is the exploitation argument, and this has to do with the exploitation of enslaved people or young boys, that that's primarily the problem here. And I think that there's a large part to that. We can't get all the details that we would like from the text, but I think this is a large part of it, especially if this is a condemnation of gentile decadence and and excess and um that they were so over over overwhelmed with their lust that they that they just started using uh, uh you know men and boys that's kind of that's kind of what his problem is it's not so much a disordered desire but an inordinate desire that they had so much sexual passion that they just didn't even care what who it was with. Right. That's really I think what Paul is going for. Yeah. In the in this exploitation argument, um, and so so the problem so Paul's main problem is that these people were so overwhelmed with their lust that they started being abusive and engaging in um, power power differential relationships that are not healthy, not appropriate, and are abusive. Okay, so that's part of it. Then the second piece, and then the third argument is the misogyny argument, which you've already alluded to, is that, that the problem with, uh, with, a, with this is that men and women are assumed to be unequal in status, and a man who makes himself into a woman is somehow betraying his gender and defiling himself. And a woman who's taking a position of a man, although this isn't really what Paul's talking about, because he doesn't explicitly say women with women anywhere here. Right. But that would have been the other half of it. And I think there is something to this misogyny argument when you when you see that there is a prohibition against um, male male sex, but no prohibition against female female sex in, in Leviticus eighteen and twenty. <laughs> Right, because what the women are doing, they're already they can't really defile each other 
any more than they already are, you know, because they're they're already lower status. It doesn't right. matter. What's what's happening here is another man is defiling. He's making another man. One man is making another man into a woman, and I think that's what they found offensive yeah. in the misogyny argument. Yeah, I think there's a piece of that here to to what Paul's saying as well. So that's so those so the, those are the three main I guess sort of rebuttals the orientation argument the exploitation argument and the misogyny argument and I think among the the scholars like uh, among among church people the exploitation argument seems to be predominant among among scholars the misogyny argument seems to be more prominent but I think they're both connected because of the way men used women right that's exploitation and misogyny already. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's misogynistic because what you're doing is you're saying you're able to use a man like you would use a woman. And I think there's a way of cohering them together that way. And, and But like I said, Paul has the people already nodding along. He doesn't have to explain it to them because they're already on board with it, which, which I'll get to later. He's actually setting up a sting operation to trap them in this. Okay. Okay. So I also want to point out what we don't have anywhere in Scripture. We don't have anywhere the condemnation of a, a same-gender relationship that is explicitly named by the text as loving, committed, lifelong, and publicly accountable. Right. We don't have that. We have these prohibitions and condemnations that are hard to, to figure out, but they don't say, hey, look, here are two men. We caught them being married, and they love each other, and now we're going to punish them. We don't have that. The condemnations we do have are hiding in shadows. We never have Paul writing to a same-gender couple and telling them you're, something like this. Your relationship is healthy and loving, and it's amazing, and the only problem with it is that it's two men. We don't have that. We don't have Paul saying, well, if one of you were a woman and you kept everything else the same, you would be fine. We don't have that. We also never have a named and contextualized same-gender couple condemned anywhere in scripture you know for these other sins that are condemned we have examples we have names of people we have names of people who have committed adultery murder all these other sins we have examples of that we don't have any example that we can compare of a named same gender couple anywhere in scripture that's named held up and then condemned so it would be different if the corinthians say had written to paul and they said to Paul, look, here we are in Corinth. We need to know what to do. We've got this um, loving married gay couple. Their names are Philip and Alexander. Uh, they're great Christians. They're part of us. They're exactly like us except that they're two men. And we're writing to you to let you know that they've got the fruits of the Spirit like we do. And they're, they're exactly like a good straight couple except they're men. That's the only variable that's different. So, Paul, tell us what we should do. That's something we don't have. Um, we could imagine Paul writing back and saying something like, well, Christ has overcome distinctions in gender, like he said in Galatians 3.28. Or we could imagine Paul saying, yes, I get it. You're too, you know, you're loving, but it's still wrong, and here's why. At least we would have that, but we don't have that. Right. And that's exactly what we would need to have to condemn my people today. Paul directly addressing the equivalent situation. We don't have that. And we don't have that anywhere in Scripture. And we just don't have answers to our modern questions. Okay? Okay. So point number nine. 
Number nine, we also have to notice that the real purpose of Romans 1 is not to provide guidance for gay people. Right. It's to set up a sting operation. So here's what Paul's doing. He wants to trap his audience into self-righteous hypocrisy so that he can get to his real point, his main point in chapter 2, about the sinfulness of all humans, Jew and Gentile, and how we are all under condemnation. So Paul begins chapter 2 with the second person singular, the singular you, okay? So he says you are without excuse because you you do, do the same things. He's trying to get people to nod along and say, look at those wicked Gentiles. Look at those wicked Roman emperors. They're doing all this bad stuff and all this wrong stuff, and I'm glad I'm not like them. And then he, he, he traps them in that and catches them in Romans chapter 2. Let me just uh, turn to Romans 2 and read the first part of that. All right. He says, he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. As This is the English Standard Version. So that's basically his what he says right after this condemnation of all of these, these sins in, in Romans 1. He, he wants his people, his good church-going people, to nod along in condemning them and then say, Surprise! You're no different. And I think that's the real point of Romans 1 isn't to attack gay people and it isn't to give gay people guidance for how we should live our lives. I think the guidance for our lives comes from, you know, Romans, uh, let's say Romans 13 to 15, uh, you know, 12 to 15, let's say. That's where he talks about his ethical standards for living in community. Okay. And uh, so that's kind of what he's doing with Romans 1. So we have to take that in context of he's not teaching once for all the final word on gay people. He's just bringing out a commonality that he know he can use that people already agree with, already know what's going on, and condemn them in it and say, look, you are being judgmental and you are guilty of equally bad things. So... Point number 10, we also have to remember that the practices Paul mentions in Romans 1 are framed as an outgrowth of idolatry. It's not an outgrowth of love or an outgrowth of genuine relationships. It's because they have turned to idolatry that these Gentiles have abandoned these other things and started these negative behaviors. And I want to say that modern gay relationships are no more the product of idolatry than modern straight relationships. And even if you do think that 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 gay relationships are are the product of idolatry, what it, what God is really saying is that God is using this same gender behavior as a punishment to these people. It's not that the same gender behavior is the sin that needs to be punished, it's the idolatry that gets punished by God turning them over to a depraved mind to do all these other disgusting things. Okay. Which is interesting. Quite. Because if you look at Genesis Genesis 11, God uses languages to punish humanity for the the uh, idolatry and arrogance of the Tower of Babel, mm-hmm. right? So that's the sin. The languages are the punishment. But we don't go around today. Oh, I, wait, I, sh- I backwards. You know, there are a lot of xenophobes that do condemn people for speaking different languages. But normal, decent people don't think that diversity of language is a bad thing even though Genesis 11 has this legend that it's the, the punishment for 
the Tower of Babel. So mm. I think you can even see this here that 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 all these other things are um, are a result of of the idolatry, and I think you have to keep that in mind. Okay. Now, point point number eleven is that we need to read the Bible holistically on this issue. We need to see the Ark of Liberation and the Ark of Ever-Expanding Inclusion throughout the Bible. If we only focus on the clobber passages, even if we refute those completely, if we refute the anti-gay interpretations thoroughly and expertly, we will still have a distorted picture of what the Bible says to gay people. Our primary attention should not be on the clobber passages. It should be on other passages, right? We should deal with these when we need to, but the primary work should be done on the texts that speak of liberation and inclusion, the, speaks, the, the parts that speak to the uplift of the marginalized and the inclusion of those who are left out. Mm-hmm. And that leads to point number 12. We shouldn't play defense all the time. We should look at how God loves sexual minorities in Scripture. We need to play offense as well. Psalm 118, verse 22, which is uh, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Mm -hmm. That fits in well right here. We have to look at every place where there's groups that people rejected and God included, including eunuchs, including single people, including divorced people, all of these other groups that are marginalized. God says, look, you've got a place, even though some uh, also the inclusion of the Gentiles goes here, too. So I'm not going to get into this more because this is the bulk of the work that I do elsewhere. Almost every other uh, piece of, of work that I do on the scriptures brings this out. So I don't need to, to go into that. Okay. But connected with this, instead of spending all our time debating whether the Bible condemns all same-sex relationships, we need to ask if the Bible condemns hate and homophobia. That should be the bigger question. A lot of people say, well, what does the Bible say about gay relationships? And they turn to Romans 1. What they should be doing is saying, like, what does it say about homophobia? What does it say about hate? What does it say about exclusion? And have that be. Rather than talking about same-gender relationships, we should talk about straight supremacy. That's the real topic that we need to talk about. Okay? So instead of going around in circles about whether same-gender love is against God's laws, we should boldly emphasize that homophobia and transphobia are against God's laws. Um, So point number 13, let's get back to Romans 1. Drawing upon Thomas Hanks again, we realize that Paul flips the script later in, in, uh, in his epistle, and he surprises his reader by later deconstructing the, re- the rhetoric of the condemnations he had in Romans 1. So there are basically four uh, four negative pieces of rhetoric that, that Paul has about these relationships. One is that they're shameful. Okay. Two is that they're against nature. Three is that they're unclean. And four is that they're covetous and selfish and hurting one another. And what Paul does is he deconstructs all the first three of those really brilliantly throughout the rest of his epistle. In terms of shame, okay, he notice he notices later that Jesus' shameful experience of being crucified is actually the decisive revelation of God's liberating justice. He talks about this in Romans three, verses twenty one through 
26, where he goes on and on about how this shameful thing is actually glorious. So two, this against nature piece. Oh, this is really, really beautiful. So if you look at the olive tree analogy in uh, Romans chapter 11, okay? So God is talking, God is the one who grafts in the Gentiles contrary to nature the way a, um, a wild olive tree is grafted into a, um, a native, a domesticated olive tree. Okay. And so in Romans 1, he uses this, fra- this prepositional phrase, parafusin, which means contrary to nature or beyond nature. Okay? That's what he uses in Romans 1. He also uses this, the exact phrase in Romans 11, about what God did. So he grafts in the wild olive tree contrary to nature, parafusin, contrary to nature. And I think that's so beautiful because he deconstructs this. He also deconstructs this uh, to some extent in his conversation about circumcision because circumcision is also something that's against nature. Like every, almost every male is born with a foreskin. We're born that way. Circumcision is something that's contrary to nature, but it is also something that God uh, has commanded for his covenant people in the Torah. So I think there's there's ways that God even celebrates um, what what what's against nature in a way of frustrating and deconstructing our assumptions about what's against nature. And third, let's talk about unclean. He deconstructs this later in chapter fourteen when he talks about you know food sacrifice to idols and uh, unclean foods. So behaviors that traditionally were condemned as unclean now are cleansed. So basically all of those rhetorical points that he uses, well, three of the four that he uses to condemn queer or to condemn what uh, people now are using against queer people. I don't think he's actually condemning queer people, but three of those things that he's using as part of his sting, the, the shamefulness gets subverted by the shamefulness of the cross. The against nature gets subverted by the act of God grafting in the Gentiles against nature. And the uncleanness also gets subverted and deconstructed by the fact that God has now cleansed all foods. So so I think that's brilliant to notice that Paul deconstructs three of the four pieces of, of negative rhetoric and the one that he doesn't undo is the one about um, coveting and abuse and selfishness and all of this other stuff. That remains mm. as the only norm that Paul keeps from Romans 1 later on in his epistle. So, and then point number 14, I want to end by pointing out a beautiful teaching in Romans 1 verse 20. So I've used this when de- defending biological evolution, right? So we've got some people that, that can't accept biology um, and then they try to use and exploit the scriptures in, in defense of their ignorance and um, and and I think I find rather than debating Genesis 1 with them it's actually more helpful to point out Romans 1 because this is so beautiful let me turn back to it so it says Romans 1 verse 20 for his invisible attributes namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived 
ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So what this does is declares that the divine attributes of the invisible God are made known in the things that were made. So in mm. terms of evolution, if we want to know how things were made, we don't go to a fundamentalist reading of Genesis 1. We look at the things themselves. We break them open. We look at their DNA. We look at their structure. We look at um, the homology between different organisms. We look at the things themselves, and they will tell us how they were made. And when we actually look at the anatomy, at the physiology, at the DNA, at, we look at all these things. We look at the fossil record. They tell us that they were made through a process of evolution. It's it's as clear as day, okay? And we don't even have to turn to, to Genesis 1. We turn to the things themselves to tell us something about how God made them. Now, taking this as well, um, it's the same with LGBT folks. If we want to know what God is like, we can look at the diversity of people who are all made in God's image, and we will know more about the God who created them. Okay? Mm -hmm. God isn't just one gender or one orientation. Rather, God represents the divine potential that we all have. We are all children of God. We have all have the, the potential to become like God, to be exalted just as God is. And that means that God is diverse. Our idea of divinity should be as diverse as our ideas of humanity. You know, a lot of people think that God is a straight white man. And that's really incomplete because if that were true all humans would be straight white men right we are all created in the image, image of god all genders all orientations all gender identities all races all of us are in the image of god and um although if if god were a straight white man and all of us were we're straight white men. I guess the only option we would have is gay relationships. So maybe that's a a blessing <laughs> for our straight siblings that that we're not all in God's uh, you know in the image of a straight white man, right? And so that's what I want to leave us with is that when we want to look at what God is like and what God's plans for us are, we should look at the diversity of all of us who are made in God's image, and that will tell us everything we need to know about Romans chapter one. Mm. All right, so yeah, man. your reactions to these things. Hopefully, I didn't take too long. <laughs> well, um, I have a lot more. I, I have a lot more I could say, and we'll get to that in other weeks. But I just—that's what I wanted <laughs> to say for this week. All right, sounds good, man. Um, I suppose I would have preferred to uh, respond as we went through each point. Like we just went through a bunch of points over the course of the last—I don't know, like several minutes—and. Uh, like my initial reaction first is like, wow, you know, great stuff, Derek. I, I really appreciate the thoughtfulness with which you approached just this particular uh, section of scripture that helps us view the scriptures with fresh eyes in a way that is affirming and that allows us to fulfill the first and second great commandments. And something that really right. stood out to me, something that I really felt like was just a section of bars was when you talked about how rather than seeking out the seven passages of scripture that we think condemn homosexuality, that we should focus on the scores of scriptures that condemn exclusion and hate, you know? Right. And we right. will see that the um, vast majority of what the scripture actually says is going to be far more likely to be on the side and far more likely to vindicate um, 
the members of the LGBTQ community than the people that hate them and deny them the opportunity for full expression of their authentic selves. So I really just appreciate your insight to affirm that thought that I had myself, but you articulated it so beautifully. Mm -hmm. So um, there, there, there's a lot there. I'm really excited to offer some of these thoughts. Um, well, a lot of these thoughts uh, when we actually start the Patreon and, you know, retroactively grant everybody access to to our notes. And I'm actually excited to just get a hold of these notes myself so that I can, uh, you know, start making my own notes and, uh, you know, journaling my own self. So uh, rather than, uh, you know, go over my initial reactions to every point that you've uh, gone over just now, mm -hmm. I, I think it would mm -hmm. just be wiser for me to have us move on and rather than have me try to add additional thoughts to what you've already beautifully art articulated if that's okay with you yeah that's fine i um i do want to add that that part of what i'm doing is i'm not saying oh our only option is to say well paul was wrong and stupid and backwards because i think i sincerely and honestly think that if i went back in time and knew what paul was talking about exactly i would be just as horrified with those sins as he was mm. and conversely if paul were brought to this this present time and got to meet loving, beautiful, spirit-filled LGBT people, he would also uh, be on my my side here as well. He would say, oh yeah, of course that's how it is. He might have to have a little bit of a Peter moment with Peter and the Gentiles and the vision that Peter had. But yeah. I, if you look at Paul's ethic of relationships, his, his way of deconstructing things around gender, the way he flips the script on things, I honestly think that if you transport Paul to this present time, knowing everything I know about Paul, he would quickly become completely pro-LGBT. Okay. So yeah, that's all I have for now. All right. Cool, man. Well, looking forward to having this discussion uh, more uh, probably in the coming week as we continue to, to discuss uh, Paul's epistle to the Romans and also when we finally have an episode that is uh, wholly dedicated to this particular subject because right. it's an important one and I would love for um I would love for you know other people to have access to a conversation on just this particular subject if that's if that's something they can benefit from and I do believe that everybody can benefit from it just as they're going to benefit right. from this conversation that we're having today so mm -hmm. with that let's go ahead and uh, move on go ahead and move on to uh, the prayer roll I will make an effort to keep this short because just thinking about it, you know, makes me a bit angry. So um, th this happened later last week before I had an opportunity to give it a proper undressing. But um, uh -huh. I think a few weeks ago I had mentioned after Tekovi and I's experience that uh, there was an overwhelmingly positive response to, uh, to Tekovi's story. But every now and again, there would come, you know, a few ex-Mormons or a few never-Mormons, white ones in particular, who would feel it appropriate to question our membership in the church. Now, this time, the impetus for this discussion or for a similar incident was President Nelson's remarks at the NAACP convention. And those were still those mm -hmm. are still making the rounds and people are still having a conversation about them. Uh, occasionally, though, that conversation will be slightly derailed to talk about the church's history of racism, which is a valid concern. You know, and I, I do want to uh, I do want to name that. But then the conversation will go all the way off the rails when the conversation 
gets changed to questioning the intelligence of a black organization involving themselves with a church that has a racist past with black members mm-hmm. of the church in the room, especially. And uh, that, that's what happened in this forum that you and I are both a part of when a white person, I'm not exactly sure his relationship with the church. I think he said something along the lines of being culturally Mormon, but not really believing in the truth claims. But, uh, you know, he thought it was an appropriate thing to express his confusion at the NAACP getting involved with the church before quoting Second Nephi chapter 5, verses 21 through 25, which tends to be the go-to scripture that a lot of uh, ex-Mormons and never-Mormons like to cite mm-hmm. to say, hey, the Book of Mormon is racist and therefore the church is racist. Now, first off, this is a very narrow reading of these particular verses. And we'll address that in a future episode right. where we address, you know, black people, their relationship with the church and black people's appearance in the scriptures, uh, because that's not the primary problem here. But what is the primary problem is the questioning of black involvement with a religion that has racism in its past. And then citing, you know, what he views as problematic scripture as if we don't already know that this is, that this exists, that black members don't know it exists, that the NAACP doesn't know it exists. And also problematic was the clear lack of interest that was later made manifest in addressing the racism in the church for the sake of black. Like he didn't address the racism in the church for the sake of black people, but rather for the sake of self-interest. And that became evident as the conversation uh, wore on. And then what followed was just a whole masterclass in, uh, in white fragility. And I just want to highlight that real quick. Uh, so when a black person finally saw this problematic conversation, she politely requested that the conversation stop. You know, and by let, let me add that this person who entered the conversation was a black woman. Now, rather than respecting the black woman's wishes, which would be the right thing to do since this issue directly affects her, and since she has more experience with this issue by virtue of both her skin color and her education, uh, the white man still demands to know why rather than admit his fault because, of course, he's, you know, entitled to an explanation from this black woman that he offended, even though he originally came in to condemn the racism that he's now exhibiting by supposing an entitlement to the black mind. Now, the white man who supposedly takes issue with racism, rather than looking inward at his own fault, then utilizes, you know, the mechanism of deflection to remove fault from himself And then insult the black woman who he offended and make himself the victim. Now, let me just remind you that this this all started with a comment by the same guy condemning the church's racism. So all the irony there. Now, the black woman who's now in this conversation takes a time Mm -hmm. to explain why this is still problematic. And then some other white guy decides to jump in and say, you know, he's more offended at you know, a white person being called a colonizer than actual racism that is being exhibited by this white man who's being called a colonizer. And I've said this many times on the show before, but a big problem with uh, situations like this is white people being more bothered by being called racist than actual racism itself. Now, the original instigator attempts to weaponize other black voices against the black woman, and he improperly 
cites appeals to authority, among other things, and then thinks that this is still all about his original argument, that it's still that people are taking issue with him pointing out racism in the church when it's not actually that that we have a problem with, but rather the method that he's gone about um, you know, trying to speak for the black community, trying to vilify the church over what he views as racism. And then doing right, so while yeah. supposing that we don't already know or that he knows better than we do. He never acknowledges this throughout the whole conversation and regularly tries to turn it on his effort and regularly tries to turn it back to his effort to simply have hard conversations and accuses members of the church who are taking issue with him for not wanting to have hard conversations. It's not about the hard conversation at all. It's all about It's all about his unwillingness to simply you know, acknowledge that nobody has asked for his opinion on what black people need to do. So I I suppose this is all um, my effort to say once again that white people are not in a position to tell black people how to handle their own oppression. They are not in a position to opine on black people's oppression. And when you insist to a black person that they are just as that their voices are just as valid as the black people's, you are supposing both a superiority to the black mind and body as well as an entitlement to the black mind and body that you really haven't earned. So uh, I just want to pray for this particular young man. Hopefully that he uh, finds speedy repentance and that he learns that. Um, that you know hopefully that he primarily learns that black liberation is more important than his feelings because he he came in here trying to flex wokeness and i immediately took issue with that and he immediately made it clear that this was not about black liberation this was not a black this was not about racism in the church this was all about him feeling better about where he was on his faith journey and he used black mm-hmm. people as mm-hmm props which was ultimately the problem with this so uh, we're going to pray for this young man and uh, hopefully implore everybody listening to this that uh, if you really want to be an ally in the black struggle lift our voices and listen to us rather than telling us how to fight our own oppression and taking issue with us when we tell you to sit back that's all I wanted to say with regard to this particular incident yeah I mean this is a tough incident because i I participated in this conversation too. I made a few points that he completely misunderstood and denied and didn't even understand. I don't, he didn't have any good comeback to what I said. But part of why we need to speak out isn't to always convince the other person because right. that may not happen. That's not, I think the we still need to speak out because we need to speak out not because. We, we're going to change the other person, but because if we don't speak out, then that other person will have changed us. I forgot who first yeah. said that, but that's yeah. very important. I am not going to uh, be a silent bystander when stuff like this happens, because if I do, then I turn into something that is not cool, right? I, I'm right. destroying my own soul. Right. In addition to all of the... Uh, problems of of letting these hurtful things get out there and and hurt people uh, 
I think we we have an we have an obligation to speak up even if we don't convince the other person just so that the that it's named in the room and other people feel safer and other people feel less burdened and it gets out there that this is not okay. Mm. And if I may add Derek, uh I would I would I would simply add that um in addition to making sure that those people don't change us, you also got to be in mind that we weren't the only people involved in that conversation that there were a lot of observers and a lot of people on the fence with regard to this conversation. And the last thing we want to do is normalize such conversation. So I I didn't participate in this conversation for the purpose of trying to change this dude's mind. I knew his mind wasn't going to change and his mind was made up about protecting his feelings rather than black liberation. Mm -hmm. But there were a lot of bystanders in that conversation, a lot of people who were looking to see what would be said And rather than try to convince this guy, I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew this kind of discourse was not welcome. It was not appreciated. It was not normal. And if anything, we need to speak up for that reason, simply that people can know what's normal and what's not, what's acceptable and what's not. Because I I know from the get, I I knew from the jump that this this guy was going to rub people the wrong way with what his initial comment was. But uh, simply letting people know that we see it and that we don't appreciate it and that it's not normal was going to was going to do a lot for the people who were present in the conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. I think um I think a similar thing can happen for for gay people in the church as well because Certainly. people people can look at us and say, "Well, look, your church is homophobic." And that actually doesn't help us. It it doesn't help us at all. Like the homophobia is still there. You naming it doesn't <laughs> does, didn't make it go away, and I'm still here as a gay member of the church. Yep. You know what you did is, is just you know shows your own wokeness and like how cool you are with the the latest yeah. thing that you're supposed to do. Yeah. But it it doesn't actually make the daily life of gay people in the church any easier, and especially right. if now we have the burden of defending our existence in the church against your um, you know pretension of of being an ally to gay people and saying, well, yeah, I think this is something that we'll have to deal with uh, as it comes along many times. Yeah. Well, that's all I have. That's all I have as well. So uh, if that is all we would like to discuss today, uh, Derek, do you have any announcements or reminders for everybody? Well, I just want to remind people that if you have questions, if you have like, ooh, I want I want Derek and James to talk about this. Like we would love to to feed all of the things that you you're curious about, right? Because I could talk about anything for hours and hours and hours. But I want to talk about stuff that actually has an impact on people, things that you're going to like hearing, things that you're going to share, things that that will be relevant to you. And the more feedback the more questions and topics we get from people the more we're able to serve people in their need absolutely and we have a lot of loyal listeners which i'm extremely grateful for at this point in time considering the short little while that uh, you and i've been doing this derek so uh we we definitely want to get to the point where we're able to serve the needs of those who have been with us from the jump and those who are you know listening to us regularly because we really do appreciate you guys and uh yeah we just want to uh made this an enjoyable experience, especially for those who are taking the time to listen to us and also provide us feedback. So uh, please let us know if you have any questions or suggestions for uh, bonus content that we can uh, put out there. Like we are still compiling a list of uh, bonus episode topics and uh, th- those topic ideas would be would be great to receive. So definitely 
let us know what your questions are and what you'd like to hear us talk about. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Bye everyone. Take care.